Well, I've told some of you the story, um, but a few weeks ago, um, when Katie and I were still in Sheboygan, um, taking care of Hudson, you can all know his name now, Hudson, <laughs> So, and he's home, and when we were taking care of him in the hospital, uh, my sister and her husband came to visit, and they brought my two-year-old nephew, Jackson, and they said, well, this is our spring break, they're teachers, so let's just kind of make a spring break trip out of it, let's find a hotel with like a pool and a water slide, and this will be, be fun, so they're telling Jackson about it, um, and they're coming to do it, and they come and visit Hudson uh, in the hospital, and then they go back and say, okay, tomorrow, Jackson, we're going to get to go, and we're going to get to play in the pool, and they get to see it as they walk to the room, you know, see, look through the glass and stuff, you hear, you know, that's chlorine smell, it's like, oh, you can even smell it, you can even smell the pool, and then next morning they get up, they get their swim trunks on, and walk down with their flip-flops, and what do they find? A sign, pool's closed. There's some sort of weird chemical issues. I don't know what they had to do. So, oh, well, okay, this is a bummer. Well, let's try to make the best of it. So then they're like, okay, malls often have, like, kids' play places. Let's look up a mall. Is there a mall here? Oh, there is a mall. And it has a play place. So she texts me, we're going to the mall, the play place. And then a while later, she texts me, so the mall's dying, going out of business. No play place. <laughs> so she was like, strike two. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this spring break is really going bad. But we kind of made up for it. We ate lunch at McDonald's where there's a play area. But on their way home, they're going to a subway, and they're like, okay, Jackson, what, what do you want to eat? And they're like, you can have this, this, or that. And he's like, well, I want soup. So like, okay, we like the soup. And they're like, oh, we forgot to take our sign down. We're all out of soup. And so it's like, so she was like strike three, you know, and it's like the poor kid, it's like, this is supposed to be this awesome spring break trip. It's like thing after thing after thing. He just keeps getting his hopes up and then gets disappointed. Um, but isn't this how life can feel to us as well? We can put our hope in something and be looking forward to it and think this thing, if only this thing could happen, then like I'm going to be set and I'm excited about this and I'll feel good about it. Uh, but then we get disappointed and when we keep trying to find something, even if that thing doesn't work out, we try to find something else, and then you know, thing after thing maybe falls apart or doesn't work out, or doesn't go as we planned. And today, as we're continuing this four-week series, um, looking at Jesus' resurrection, um, talking about Jesus is alive. So now what? That's what we celebrated at Easter. Jesus is alive, which shows that a new relationship with God has been opened up to us, and we can know God. And last week we looked at a prayer by the Apostle Paul about how we can know God better. Um, but how do we know God? Like in our day-to-day -day lives, how are we supposed to know God? We're not sitting and looking at him face to face. Um, so what sort of things should we do to know him better? And we learned in that passage last week that we know God better through seeing the hope he gives to us, the love he has for us, and the power he works in us. And, and so we're going to, now these next three weeks, we're going to go deeper into all three of those, hope, love, and power. And this week, we're going to be looking at hope, digging deeper into hope. And we're going to do that by looking at 1 Peter. And this was a letter written to a group of believers um, by one of Jesus' closest followers named Peter. And we learned a lot about him in our Easter series. Um, he's following Jesus uh, during his whole ministry. And they get in Jerusalem, and Peter really thinks Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to set up his kingdom. Um, and then Jesus is talking about, I'm going to my death. And Peter says, you know, I'll follow you even to your death. And then just several hours later... Peter denies even knowing Jesus, that, and he um, goes out and weeps bitterly when Jesus looks him in the face as he's being questioned and trialed um, during the night right before he's about to die. Um, but then Jesus dies, um, and Peter, who put his hope in Jesus, watches his hope die and get put in, a, in the tomb. Because he thought Jesus was going to be this king who would rescue his people, 
but then to Peter's surprise, Jesus raised the life three days later. Now, this letter that we write, Peter is really focused on hope. His hope died, and now it got brought back to life, literally, because Jesus is alive. And so we get to hear about what hope, what difference does hope make in Peter's life? And that's the big question this passage answers. What difference does hope make? What difference does hope make? And I'm going to give you the answer right up front, and then we're going to unpack as we go through. So the question is, what difference does hope make? And the answer is, our living hope produces holy living. Our living hope produces holy living. That's the difference that hope makes. Our living hope produces holy living. We're going to cover this passage in two parts. In verses 3 through 12, we'll learn about our living hope. What is it? And then verses 13 through 21, we'll learn what difference that makes. How does it produce holy living? And so our living hope produces holy living. Let's talk about what our living hope is in verses 3 through 12. As I said, Peter writes this letter. He writes it about 30 years after Jesus died and was raised and, and ascends to the Father's right hand. Um, so this is you know, 30 years after all that happened. And in the early centuries of Christianity, uh, not a lot of people liked Christians. Um, they thought their beliefs were weird and actually thought their beliefs were harmful um, to the purposes of the government because all the Roman Empire is um, they're polytheists, which means they believe in multiple gods. And so you need to pray to these gods to make them happy so that the government goes well, so the empire keeps standing. And so you have these Christians who are saying, no, we're not praying to all those gods. We're praying to one God, and that's, that's it. And so that made a lot of people unhappy. And so they suffered a lot of persecution, a lot of pressure because of their beliefs. They're threatened by government officials. Um, they're ridiculed and criticized and scorned by neighbors, friends, coworkers, and family members because people just don't get it. Like, what is this weird belief that you have? And so they're feeling pressure on all sides to turn from Jesus. And you can, if you read this First Peter, every time I pick up First Peter, I'm like, man, this is just an amazing letter because it's crazy to look at Peter's story of a guy who was like denied Jesus when the pressure was on. And now where he comes when he writes this letter 30 years later is he's leading the church and shepherding people in the church. And so to counteract all this pressure they're feeling, Peter writes about hope. And he sets their hope on something bigger and better than having the government on their side. And he sets their hope on something bigger and better than having neighbors appreciate their beliefs. And on something bigger and better than feeling comfortable and liked and respected and accepted by people around them. And so does that sound like something you need? Does it sound like a bigger and better hope is something you need? And do you need something that would give you courage and that goes beyond your current circumstances and about what other people think of you? Because that's what Peter's writing about here. He's saying, you're feeling this pressure. Let me write to you about a hope better than all those other things, what all those other things can offer you. And he describes this hope with three truths. And the first is in verses three through five. He, he tells us that our living hope makes our future unshakably secure. And so this is, we're going to do three truths about it, um, describing what our living hope is. And so our living hope makes our future unshakably secure. Our living hope makes our future unshakably secure. And as Peter describes it, he's laying the foundation for everything he's about to say in this letter. And imagine he, he's um, reading us and them, his readers, um, a book about their life. And in these verses, he flips to the, to the last chapters to describe what the future holds to them. I know you're here, but let's just flip to the end and see what the end is. And the question is, why is our future 
unshakably secure. And first of all, it's because it comes from God. Verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter praises God for the living hope because the living hope comes from him, and it's based on God's mercy. And mercy is one of those words that we might hear a lot in church but don't really know what it means. And mercy is kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. So you see someone in need and you have kindness towards them or you have concern for them, that's mercy. If you see someone on the street, you see your kid fall down or you know whoever it is, it's seeing somebody's need and expressing concern and kindness towards it. And we were in great need and God met that great need out of his great mercy. And So how does he meet it? Well, Peter says that he caused us to be born again to a living hope. And all of us were born from a mother uh, into a family. And so we were born into a family with certain characteristics and certain futures for that family. And God the Father causes us to be born again into his family. That's why it's born again. We're all born once. But he's like, now I'm bringing you into my family. I'm give you birth again into my family. We become part of this living hope because God causes us to be born into his family. And how is this living hope made possible? Well, Peter says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what makes it a, a living hope. It isn't a dead hope. Dead things can't do anything. They're ineffective, they're unable, and they're empty. But their hope and our hope is alive because the one who makes it possible, Jesus, is alive. He's not dead in the tomb. He was raised to life. Peter watched him die, but now Jesus is living and he can deliver on his promises. He can secure our future because he isn't dead in a tomb. He's not just some guy who had a bunch of teachings that make us feel good and he said, like, if you do this, you'll get that. No, he's still alive and he's promising and delivering on his promises today. And Jesus' death on our behalf makes all of this possible because it, it, he was resurrected to new life um, and we will be as well. His present, what he, his present existence is our future existence. Peter goes on in verse 4 to describe this living hope even more. He, God has caused them to be born again, and then pick up in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God the Father caused us to be born again into his family. And children born into a wealthy family, or maybe not even a wealthy family, can be written into the will and get an inheritance. And now this is true of God's family. We're born into his family, and now God has an inheritance for us. And once again, our living hope is unshakably secure because it comes from God. He, it's his inheritance, and he gives it to his children. And then Peter uses four descriptors to show how unshakably secure it is. He says it's imperishable, meaning it's not going to deteriorate, it's not going to wear out, like your clothes wear out or your shoes wear out. It's undefiled, meaning it can't be polluted or defaced or vandalized. You know, your shoes and your clothes and your car, it all gets dirty, it all wears down. Um, he's saying that can't happen to your inheritance. And it's unfading, meaning it won't decrease in quality, or and it won't run out. It's not like, okay, too many people got in and now we're out. You know, like the subway thing, like, you know, so we're, we're out of soup. It's not like God's going to make, sorry, I'm out of inheritance. No more people can have it. It's unfading. And lastly, it's kept in heaven, guarded by God himself, meaning it can't be stolen. It can't be lost. God is guarding it by his, personally. My poor nephew Jackson was hit by all of these. 
he had this hope, in the, but the pool needed to be repaired so he couldn't be enjoyed. And the mall was dying, so it had no play area. The subway ran out of soup. And dying things, they deteriorate, they mold, they rust, they rot, they decay, they fade, they wear out, they get broken, and they lose their new car smell. But our hope is living, and it always will be, which makes it unshakably secure. And not only is our hope and our inheritance being guarded by God, but so are those who will receive it. Verse 5 says, The inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter calls uh, our living hope our salvation that we long for. He's called it living hope. He's called it inheritance. He's called it salvation. Later, he's going to call it grace. These are all just synonyms he uses throughout this passage. And this salvation, it's ready and prepared. It's not like God's like in the kitchen. He's like, just a minute, you know, and you know somebody dies. He's like, sorry, I'm sorry, it wasn't, wasn't done yet. It's like, it's ready, it's prepared. He's done what needs to be done. Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, and now salvation's ready. And those whom God causes to be born again um, into this living hope, he guards through faith by his power to receive this salvation. And so not only does God keep the living hope for us, but he keeps us for the living hope. He bring, Once he gives us faith, he sustains that faith in us. And the first truth about our living hope is that it makes our future unshakably secure. And the second truth is that our living hope makes our present unspeakably joyful. Our living hope makes our present unspeakably joyful. So it's the future is unshakably secure and our present is unspeakably joyful. Peter took them to the final chapters in their life. He shows them the future. This is the future that God has for you. But now he flips back in the book um, to their present. He's like, okay, that's your future, but let's step back into the present. Where are you at right now? And that's what he does in verses 6 through 9. And Peter's readers have joy in their living hope, and so should we. But he also recognizes that they're grieved by trials. These chapters of their story can be difficult. And Peter particularly has in view trials and hardships that come from being rejected for their faith. People all around them are ridiculing them for their faith. If you keep reading in 1 Peter, he gives some examples of what people are saying to them and the sort of things that they're saying, like that they're weird um, for doing. And the, the government and neighbors and coworkers and family members think their beliefs are a joke and are dangerous. They're undermining um, the government and they should be praying to the gods to help um, the emperor. And if they talk to someone about Jesus, it might be met with anger or laughter, or rejection, or maybe even death, if it's the right government official, or they get turned into the government officials. And don't we face similar difficulties today, perhaps minus death? It was much more extreme for Peter's readers, but today we still have people all around us who are antagonistic, or maybe even hostile toward our faith. You know, I go to Starbucks several times a week to work and meet people, and there's just a mixed bag of people there. Some people are like, yeah, I'm not really interested. Some people that are like, that's kind of hooey. Um, some people who are like, you need to get more relaxed. You're taking this thing, this Bible thing too seriously. And it's just a mixture of people, even in that environment. And maybe you've had coworkers or family members say like, you know, you're just kind of super religious. Like the, all, everything in moderation, like calm down about this Jesus stuff. And, and now more and more Christians who believe what the Bible teaches about marriage um, and gender and sexuality are like kind of like this rock that was once laid like picture this is the rock and like here's the waters of our culture and now as those values are draining out of our culture we're like this rock that's submerged and everyone's like hey you guys don't fit in anymore like you 
you think that marriage is between one man and one woman? You think that sexuality was designed in the context of marriage between a man and a woman? You think that gender is something that God gives to us? And it's kind of like all of a sudden people see us where before we were kind of hidden um, below um, the va- when our, the values of the culture were in line with um, Christianity. But even amidst this, we can rejoice in our unshakable living hope. Um, but Peter says that these trials that they're going through are purposeful. They're not pointless. Because they prove the genuineness of our faith. It's like gold that's purified by fire. And then it's brought down to be more and more refined and more and more pure. When we stay faithful to Jesus, even when it's uncomfortable or costly or risky, it proves that our faith is real. When we have friends um, in our school, in our neighborhoods, um, our workplaces that are saying, like, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't believe that. That's backwards thinking. That's regressive thinking. You should be opening yourselves up and be affirming all these things that the culture must affirm about gender and transgenderism and homosexuality. And that can be met with a lot of hostility and heat. And when we stay true to Jesus in those moments, um, then our faith is proved genuine. The promise of Jesus is that even though we may be ridiculed by the world for faith in him, we will receive praise and glory and honor when he returns. So don't worry about getting all that now. Worry about getting it from him when he returns. And if you have trouble making your faith in Jesus public to other people, then it probably means you put too much hope in what other people think of you. You want praise and honor and glory from them, but that's a dead hope. It, it leads nowhere. It's not a living hope. And honestly, I mean, this is something I need to hear too because I have people, I just mentioned people at Starbucks and I have neighbors and I've, some people have like, there's been times where it's like, okay, I did a really good job there. I didn't kind of like backpedal or like be afraid of sharing what I believe or what I, how I disagree with where the culture is going. Um, but, uh, but then there's been times when I've been like, I, can't, I feel you know, afterwards I'm like, I felt like a whole held back a little bit. Like you don't need to be in people's face, but it's like, man, I didn't just state the truth clearly and state what I believe because I was afraid of offending that person and them getting mad at me and rejecting me. Um, so we all need to hear this message that we need to live for Jesus' praise and honor and glory and not for the praise, honor, and glory of other people. And so speaking of Jesus, Peter goes on in verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with hope, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Like them, we have not seen Jesus, and we don't see him now. He's not sitting in front of us. He's present with us through his spirit, but we don't see him um, physically. And yet we love him, and we can believe in him, and we can rejoice with an inexpressible, glorious joy. Our living hope should give us a joy that is almost difficult to put into words. He says it's like inexpressible. It's like, I can't just, it's like hard to explain. You know, somebody asks you, like, what's going on with you? It's like, I can't express it. And then he said it's also supposed to sit on our hearts with this weightiness because of how great it is. He says glorious, and glory speaks to weightiness. It's like, man, I just have this, like, settled joy that it's just hard to express. And it's interesting because later in this letter, Peter will tell um, his readers, he'll say, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. If people are like, what the heck is up with you? Why do you have this hope? Why do you have this joy? I see this in your life. And then it's like, okay, here's my reason. So it's like, there's one sense where it's like, man, it's just hard to put a finger for people to put a finger on it. Like, how do you express this? And yet, there's, we're supposed to be ready to be able to explain it to people. You know, it's because of Jesus, because he died for me, because it gives me this amazing living hope and amazing future. And Peter's told us two truths thus far. First, our living hope 
makes our future unshakably secure. Second, our living hope makes our present unspeakably joyful. Lastly, Peter says, our living hope makes our time unmatched in privilege. Our living hope makes our time unmatched in privilege. Living hope makes our time unmatched in privilege. In verses 10 through 12, Peter's going to, we could go, man, there's so much that we could go into in these verses, but just quickly, he's like, okay, the prophets of old, the ones in the Old Testament, you know, first part of our Bible, um, that's what they were reading at the time, this New Testament wasn't put together, so saying all the prophets, they were talking about this living hope, and God let them see it, he let them talk about it and give that message, but they never were going to get to participate in it, so they could see it, but they weren't going to participate in it. In the same way, um, the angels um, who are in heaven, God's messengers, they also are seeing it unfold, but they're not getting to participate in it either. They're not getting to be redeemed by Jesus and saved by Jesus and have this living hope. And so for us, um, we get to live in this special time of unmatched privilege because we live after Jesus has come and we get to see, oh, this is what all these you know, centuries and thousands of years we're talking about in the Old Testament. We get to live in the time of fulfillment where the promises were made and now they've been fulfilled and we get to look forward to even more fulfillment in the future. The big question this passage answers is what difference does hope make? And the answer is that our living hope produces holy living. We've just covered three truths about our living hope. So let's now turn to holy living that it produces in verses 13 through 21. And the word holy is a book that occurs a lot in the Bible um, and it means to be set apart or unique or uncommon. It's kind of like out of the ordinary. It's like this is ordinary, uh, but holy is extraordinary. It's unique and uncommon. And our living hope produces in us uncommon, um, unique mindset, lifestyle, uh, and motivations. And the good news of our living hope, it's like the seed that gets planted in us. And when that seed sprouts and grows, it bears this unique fruit that you don't see from any other seed um, that could be planted in your life. And Peter's going to give three types of fruit that our living hope hope produces. And these tell us uh, the difference that hope makes in our lives. And so first, our living hope produces trust without limits. Our living hope produces trust without limits. Living hope produces trust without limits. And we see this in verse 13, it, which begins with a therefore. These two passages are linked together by that one little word, verse 13, um, telling us what Peter's about to say uh, is based on what he has just got done saying. And so he's told them about their living hope. And then he says, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've been given this amazing living hope and we should set our hope fully on it. We shouldn't like diversify our investments or put eggs in other baskets. He's like, no, put all your eggs in this basket. Go all in. Bet the whole farm on this. We should be fully, perfectly, completely put all of our hope in Jesus. It's like if you had a hope budget, you should just spend it all on Jesus. Like don't save a little bit and put it in another place. Just spend it all on him. And it's like you have this hope. And he's like, set it fully on Jesus. Like you, if you could pick it up, it's like just take it and put it in Jesus' hands. Just put it there. And that's trust without limits. I'm not going to diversify. I'm not going to put eggs in other baskets. They're all going to be in this basket. And we know that our living hope makes our future unshakably secure. And so we should trust Jesus without limits. But what does this look like? Peter 
gives two kind of images. He, it's, uh, one is preparing your minds for action, and the other is being sober-minded. And preparing your minds for action is kind of like this interesting picture he gives, because in the ancient world, um, they would wear like this sleeveless um, kind of shirt thing that went down to their ankles or their knees, and they might wear a poncho over it. But if they wanted to, if they're like relaxing or at a ceremony or a banquet or something, they would just have it going full length down. But um, if they wanted to like be ready to work or be ready to go to battle, you take the bottom parts and you kind of tuck it into your belt so now your legs are free and so you can move um, better and, and more quickly. And so that's what he's... The, uh, phrase here is he's saying gird up the loins of your mind which is like take your things and stuff if you ever if your mind like had these things it's like take them and stuff them in so you're like ready for action you're ready for service and so it's almost like saying roll up your sleeves you know get your sleeves out of the way roll up your sleeves like have your mind set in this place where you're ready for service and action and then he says um, be sober-minded which would be the opposite of being drunk-minded and so it means to be alert, don't be dulled, and don't be inattentive. And Peter is giving these two pictures of what does it look like when you're trusting Jesus without limits. It, it doesn't look like you're a couch potato relaxing and, and drinking beer. He's like, you need to be prepared for action. You need to have, be alert, be sober-minded. Don't be just kind of like nulling yourself uh, or numbing yourself. Um, it looks like someone who's ready for service and alert and prepared. And when we set our hope fully in Jesus' hands, uh, our life is also fully in Jesus' hands. We aren't sitting around doing nothing, um, waiting for our inheritance to come. We're so called to serve King Jesus with our lives. And often the New Testament talks about the Christian life as a race. Running a race is active, and the goal is to finish. You need to stay the course. You need to dig deep when you're going up a hill. And you need to push through the pain. You need to set your eyes on the prize. I'm going to finish this race. I'm going to be at those closing ceremonies. You know, I'm going to win or lose. I'm going to finish this race. And Jesus calls us to run the race of faith. He calls us to push through the painful times and stay the course. When people are putting pressure on you to turn away from Jesus, stay the course. Dig deep. Push through the pain. We need to keep looking to the salvation that's going to be brought to us when he returns. Keep our eyes on the prize we want to finish and be at that closing ceremony. And we need to be active for service to Jesus and alert to the things that would pull us off the path and alert to what the Spirit's telling us um, to do. At the end of this letter, Peter says, you know, I think he uses the word sober again, but he says, be sober-minded, be ready, because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. And so Satan wants us to abandon Jesus, just like we saw um, in Luke 22 when Jesus is like, I prayed for you, Peter, that you would not fall because Satan wanted to sift you like wheat. And so the same thing is happening to us. So we need to be alert to the devil's schemes. We need to be uh, prepared for action, prepared to service, not sitting around unalert, you know, ready to be attacked because we're vulnerable. And second... So first, our living hope produces trust without limits. Second, our living hope produces love until it hurts. Our living hope produces love until it hurts. Our living hope produces love until it hurts. Peter writes this in verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And God the Father caused us to be born again into his family. And now, 
we're called to obey him, to listen to him and do what he says. Once we know God, we should not live like we did before we knew God. That just doesn't even make sense. Today, instead, of, instead, we're to grow into the family likeness. Who are we to look like? Well, you know, a chip off the old block kind of thing. We're to look like our Father, our Heavenly Father, like Father, like Son, or like Daughter. We should be holy as He is holy. But again, what does holiness mean? What does it mean to be holy like God? Well, as we said before, to be holy means to be unique, to be set apart, to be uncommon. And, and God is, is totally unique. He's one of a kind. There's no one like him. And there's some attributes about God that we cannot share. We can't be all-powerful like God. We can't be all-knowing like God. We can't be present everywhere like God. We don't share those attributes with him. But there are some attributes that we can share with God because he created us that way. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us we are created in the image of God. We're like a mirror, a reflection of God. And Peter quotes from a book in the Old Testament that's entirely focused on holiness, the book of Leviticus and in it, God calls the people of Israel to be holy as he is holy. And the way God, they're supposed to be totally unique and different and uncommon, just like God is totally unique and different and uncommon. And he says the way you do this is through love. Um, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. You're supposed to love other people like I've loved you. That's how there's the, the, like what it kind of boils down to. You're supposed to love people. Um, like God loves people. And we see his love displayed on the cross. God's love for us is proven and demonstrated in how Jesus took the penalty for our sins in our place. And God loved until it hurt. He accepted pain that isn't rightfully his to bear. He took on a problem that he didn't make, um, but he provided the solution through pain um, and blood and ultimately death. And this is what our love is to look like. Our love for others, especially one another. Uh, Jesus says the world will, will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. That's like one of the things that proves um, the gospel is true is when people see the church loving in a crazy, unique way. Like, what, why are they sacrificing for each other so much? Why are they doing all these things for one another? So, oh, well, because Jesus did this for us, so why wouldn't we do it for other people? And people should look at us and see something different than they normally see. They should see love that gives freely, forgives, and bears with others, and serves sacrificially. And they should see love that's patient and kind. All those things from 1 Corinthians 13. Love that's patient and kind. Doesn't envy or boast. Isn't arrogant or rude. Doesn't insist on its own way. Isn't irritable or resentful. Isn't, uh, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And the world should look at God's family and say, Those are people who love others like I've never seen before. They love until it hurts. They love um, not just out of like, okay, I have like five extra hours today. I'm going to use four for myself and, you know, one for other people. It's like, no, they love till it hurts. They do things that are uncomfortable that they don't, wouldn't normally want to do and they sacrifice to serve others. And in this way, they see a picture of the God who loved us until it hurt. You know, one thing is Katie and I have been you know, preparing for, for Hudson, like, I don't, I don't even know how many of you made meals, but we had meals just, I, we haven't even finished them all yet. We had meals for like this whole three weeks and we would tell people, I think we told Katie's parents, we were like, yeah, we don't really need food. And they were like, should we get you anything? So we're staying there. And we're like, no, our church made us food. And they're like, oh, like you are, they're Christians. And they're like, you guys are a really awesome church family. And like Katie told some of the nurses and they'd be like, whoa. And it's just like meals, you know, <laughs> meals. It like demonstrates to people um, a love unlike anything they've ever seen before. And so people are like, what? People don't do that for other people. Like, why would somebody cook you 
three weeks of meals. And it's just, you know, those ways that we take care of each other. So first, our living hope produces trust without limits. Second, our living hope produces love until it hurts. Third, our living hope produces honor rightly placed. Our living hope produces honor rightly placed. Living hope produces honor rightly placed. Verse 17, Peter says this, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, Peter first he says, well, he says in there, he doesn't first say this, but he says in there, they're living in exile. Why would he say that? What? They're living in exile. Exile is like you're separated from something. Um, they're citizens of God's kingdom now, but they aren't living in his kingdom currently. They're kind of like visitors, strangers, um, sojourners in a foreign country. They're uh, citizens of God's kingdom, but currently they reside in a sin-soaked world that isn't recognizing God as king. But while separated from our home country, we're supposed to conduct ourselves with fear, Peter says. Why? Because we call on God as Father, and he's going to judge impartially according to each one's deeds. He doesn't play favorites. Now, at first, we may have a tough time swallowing that. Well, what happened to grace? I thought we didn't get judgment. But what happened to mercy? What happened to love? What about Jesus dying for our sins? Now I'm going to be judged and evaluated for my deeds? I thought Jesus' work saved me. Why am I getting my deeds getting looked at? Well, fear does not mean we cower afraid of God. Peter says we're supposed to fear God. But it means we honor him. And shouldn't that be natural? If we call him Father, shouldn't we honor him as our Father? Shouldn't we listen to him and do what he says? If we look forward to inheritance from him, shouldn't we desire to please him? You know, maybe there's people we've watched, I don't know, for however many years that are like, oh, they have this trust fund, they have this inheritance, and now they don't really have to work. They kind of just party and can do whatever they want. Are we supposed to be like spoiled kids who kind of just like, woohoo, like we're getting inheritance, we have to work for anything, and we're just going to do whatever we want? But we're not supposed to do that because we call him, him Father. Um, that doesn't mean he's going to overlook how we live our lives. As parents, do you overlook, because you love your kids, do you overlook how they uh, live their lives? No, you still want them to um, be like you. You want them to do good things. You want them to grow up to be kind and loving and um, good people in our society, not people that get thrown in jail because they can't be controlled. I mean, each of us should have a deep desire um, to hear well done from God at the end of our lives. We were created to desire that. It's like a built-in feature. The problem is um, we can seek well done from other things or from other people instead of ultimately from God. And when we do that, we're going to aim to please those things instead of aiming to please God. But we not only live to honor God as Father, but we honor the price paid for our salvation. Peter says um, to conduct ourselves with fear, and he gives another reason in verse 18. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So each one of us, no matter how you grew up, if you weren't trusting in Jesus, lived empty, fruitless 
dead lives prior to hearing the gospel and believing it. And then God purchased you out of that life. You were in slavery to that life, and he purchased you out of it. You were living in a garbage pit of living for yourself. And so if he paid so much to free you from that life, why would we now go back to living there? Like, oh, cool, like you paid a million bucks to get me out of this? I'd just rather live in the garbage pit, thanks. I'll just keep the million bucks. What? And shouldn't we honor the price paid for our redemption by staying out of the garbage pit from which God freed us. And so we seek to honor both God as our Father because we want to listen to Him and do what He says, and we want to honor the price paid to free us from that life of living for ourselves. And so we now live um, for Him. And our problem with all of this is that we place our hope in dead hope instead of our living hope. Or we put it into multiple things. Jesus is maybe one of them, but, you know, I'm going to kind of put it in some other things, too. I'm going to kind of split my hope. I'm not going to put it all in his hands. We can put our hope in jobs, in our kids, or in having kids, in houses, or in money. And so, you know, think about it. What are your if-onlys? How do you finish that? If only I could finish everything at work, then I'd have joy. If only I was married or had kids, then I'd be satisfied. If only I could make this much more money, then I'd be secure. If only I had more free time, then I'd be at peace. If only people respected and appreciated me, then I'd be happy. So what's your if only? If you're writing things down or maybe just in your head, um, just take a moment, think about that, and, and write it down if you want to. What's your if only? problem with our if-onlys is that they're all dead hopes. They're not leading anywhere. It may take us time to realize it. Maybe the new car, maybe the shopping trip, maybe the vacation, um, maybe the whatever feels good for a while, but eventually realize, man, this is kind of like dead. And now I need to find something else because that thing's worn out. And I'm not saying all those things are bad. God gives us um, blessings and things to enjoy. He gives us kids to enjoy, creation to enjoy. Um, vacations to enjoy, families to enjoy, food to enjoy, but all those things, if our hope is in those and not the one who created it, you know, like look further down the line, like, ooh, look, here's this car, this is so awesome. No, look at the one who gave the car. That's the one who can give you a real living hope. And they'll never give us the joy and the security we want them to give us. We need a bigger and a better hope than those things. And Jesus is the only living hope. He's the only one who can give us true, lasting, guaranteed hope. If your life isn't marked by joy, a sense of blessing, a readiness to serve Jesus, extraordinary love for others, and a desire to hear, well done from God, then that might be a sign that you've put your hope in something less than God and what he offers to you. And if you don't trust Jesus and you aren't serving him, well, who are we serving? And if we're not living with love towards others, what are we giving to them? And if you aren't seeking God's well done, whose are you seeking? And if you're in a gospel fluency group, it could be a good thing to share your if-only with them this week. It's like, here's my if-only. Here's the thing like I, I constantly kind of come back to. It's like the rut I go to. It's like, I'm putting my hope in that thing, and I want to put it in Jesus. And it would be a great opportunity for people to pray for you and then tell you, how. well, how is Jesus' hope that he gives you bigger and better? And if you aren't in one, um, I encourage you to just share that with someone you trust, a spouse or a friend or someone in this church 
text them and say, you know, here's my if only. Here's the thing I have trouble putting my hope in. You know, can you help me hear why Jesus is bigger and better than that? And we get a full and clear picture of God when our eyes are open to the hope that he gives to us. And you know what someone is like by what they do. And God gives his kids an amazing inheritance. And that tells us the kind of father he is. He's generous and he's merciful and he's loving and he's kind. And he blesses beyond what we deserve and beyond what we could ever pay for or we could ever earn. It's um, all undeserved and we can never get it ourselves. And he desires to bless us and he calls us to bless others with the same kind of love that he's given to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the promises of this amazing living hope, our inheritance, um, the grace, salvation that you've promised for us. Would you help us to have our eyes on the future to what Jesus will do when he returns, how he will give us new resurrected bodies, of how he'll make this whole earth new, of how we'll see you face to face, and we will not be troubled by sin anymore or people opposing our faith. Would you help us to live with that hope so we'd be courageous and confident, um, placing our trust fully in you. In your son's name that we pray. Amen.